I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PMF. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, and all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL podcast, Steve Palazzolo, back here with Sam Monson. It's July 6th, meaning it's ranking season, Sam. Let's start ranking some stuff. How you doing? Doing good, Steve. You? Doing great. O-line ranking week. We've got a bunch of fantasy stuff up on the site, pff.com. Bump in because, again, for us, this is like when we start the season, right? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, ramping up into the season that we all hope and assume will still happen as happen. you know, not as normal, but uh, something like normal. How was your uh, Happy America Day? Um, it was great. It was a little a little different being here in uh, in Cincinnati. You usually go back to the Boston area, see family and all that stuff, but we were here in Cincinnati in the uh, the heat that felt like a God, hot yeah, lamp, hot. like right on your face. But it was all right. Yeah, it's pretty freaking warm here at the moment. You've got some news, right? Let's let's start off with the news. Congratulations. Can we get some music in here? Can we get something patriotic in here for Sam? Star Spangled Banner music going. Yes. Can you can you sing our national anthem, fellow citizen? Can you? Uh, I think I probably could, actually. Yeah. I think I could get pretty close. Can yeah, the green read- cards came in. Let's redo this and start it with you singing the national anthem. Oh, Pledge say of- can you see? Perfect. It's Pledge allegiance to the flag. You should, you should just- I used to have to do that when I was seven and I lived in Minnesota for a year. That was one of the things you had to go pledge allegiance every morning. So I, when I was, I can't do that anymore. I have no idea what the hell that is. But when I was seven, I had to do that every day at school. Well, that's good. I mean, that's part of the reason why you got your green card, I assume. Obviously, yeah. They, you they pledged knew. allegiance at one point. So that's good. But it was a, it was a long process and uh, worked out for Yes. Long. Yes, extremely long process. It's supposedly like you you ever go into the sort of online, you know, guides to how this thing works. It's it's very smooth thing, step by step. It'll take a few months, be fine. I this was t- better part of two years, I think, right? From yeah. starting this whole mess to actually getting the physical card in hand. Well, nice. Well, con- congratulations. Welcome again to the country. It, uh, it came with a handy pamphlet that was like, welcome to the United States. Having really? been here for two years already, it's I got a welcome. Oh, look, we got music. There you go. <laughs> Wait, do I have to st- I'm not singing along to this. We you can forget up? about that. Oh, yeah. You're going to stand up and, and hand. Yeah. Uh, anyway, moving along. Oh, I just hit my head on my ceiling. Not good. Did you see that uh, Mike Rice photo of him and uh, Trent oh, Brown? Damn it. Stop spelling it rice and I'll Mike Reese photo of him and Trent Brown. Mm-hmm. Yes. He, like training camp or whatever. And Trent Brown's just stood there full pads. Mike yeah. is there on a stepladder, literally right. on a stepladder. And he's still a foot 
shorter than him. It, the, I mean, uh, it's amazing. I mean, I guess it's, it, you know, as an aside, yeah, I, I was going to post, somebody started that thread, right? Was it, was it Mina that started the thread that was like, yeah, I think so. Show me a picture of a large man looking small because of yeah. essentially a larger man. Right. You know, that was me and Chase Young, maybe over the college football awards. I made Chase Young yeah, look yeah. pretty small. Uh, like, but, we're not that bad. Like, I, don't, I mean, I've, no. there have been occasions where I've had to stand on a box in your vicinity. It's but the depth it's a small box. Thing. It's about depth, though, because, you know, every now and again, if I'm too far forward and, you know, yeah. the tricks of the camera make right. me look like yes. an even bigger perspective monster. can very quickly turn you into an absolute monster. But like I've occasionally had to stand on a box in your vicinity yeah. in order to make a shot work, but it hasn't been a step ladder. Like it's a small box and it right. sort of more or less does the job, right? No, Mike, I haven't needed to go two two steps up a step ladder and still be six inches shorter than you. Mike is tiny and Trent Brown's like pushing 380. So yeah, that sounds yeah. about right. The most ridiculous thing I've ever seen is, um, do you know Neil Fingleton? who Neil Fingleton is um, recently passed away, but he played, uh, was it the mountain on uh, game of Thrones? Yeah. Who's the, the big, the big monster. He played him yeah, yeah. on game of Thrones, but I knew him back. We, we both graduated the same year. The mountain was that half Thor? Bjorn Not the guy. mountain. It was the other one, the other guy, the other big monster. He died um, earlier in the, it's uh, the other huge, the other huge guy. Anyway, um, Neil and I both graduated from Massachusetts high school the same year. Back in 2000. He was the yeah. actual giant? Like the giant giant. Yeah, like he was seven foot five. Like from the, but like in the series, the, the actual like mythical creature giant as opposed to giant human being. Yeah, the mythical creature guy. Yeah. Right. Because it was like actual giants what? in that series as opposed to just a giant man called a mountain. What do you mean actual giants? Like actual giants, fairies, dwarves, giant, like giants non-humans giant species oh okay oh i got you okay yeah he was um what what was he mag the mighty sorry yeah there you go he was the actual giant he was the guy um so he was uh neil played high school basketball in massachusetts and then went to the university of north carolina and he was from worcester mass um originally from durham england by the way um from the isles but he, <laughs> I saw him out in an establishment in Worcester back when I was playing baseball out there, of course. And uh, I looked up, and it was, it was ridiculous. I walked in, and there was a girl standing on, like, a chair and then still, like, looking way up to him. Like, it was, that was, like, the most ridiculous thing I've seen in person. I mean, he really looked like he was on stilts. It was a completely different world. So he was, uh, when, yeah, he would have we dwarfed uh... me. He could have you know, right. posted a picture with me. When we were at the Super Bowl, you know, the, the, the week of media, the media week, there's always various celebrities walking around, hawking whatever it is they're selling that particular day. And at one point in the room was you, obviously, um, the big show. Was Shaq in there at the same time? Or was yes. he there? I wanted to get a photograph of like you three and then me down the front. It's just like actual human perspective. But you next to Shaq in the big show would have been pretty special. Especially yes. like a regular human in the same vicinity. Next time humans are allowed to uh, convene and yeah. we're at Super Bowl Radio Row and all that stuff, we will make it a point to get all of those celeb pictures. That Thursday and Friday of, of media week is, uh, is pretty crucial for that stuff. Um, anyway, enough of the tall people talk. Let's talk about <laughs> offensive linemen. Wait a second. Um, so it's about... People. 
what they have more tall people, more Trent Brown discussion, but we have our offensive line rankings. I wrote them all up. It's uh, over 10,000 words of good goodness. I think over at pff.com. These are always some of our more, I mean, this is like our most popular article every year, as far as people searching it and just wondering, it's something I think we do pretty well at PFF is, you know, give some insight to a position in a position group that doesn't get a whole lot of love uh, or, you know, not love, but uh, yeah. So we go through our position rankings, one through 32, all of the offensive lines, and uh, we're going to discuss it here today. Sound good? Mm-hmm. You want to get going? How do you want to? You want to just start at the top and discuss the best and work our way down? Yeah, yeah. Hit on just some of the harder. highlights. All right, let's go through it. So, um, one thing that stood out as I was putting together some of these rankings, and you know, we always put the list up and you look at them and stuff like that. Every time you're ranking something, it seems like there's a point where it becomes difficult, right? Sometimes it's at 15 or 20, and it becomes somewhat interchangeable and O-line, it hits like five, and you're like, uh-oh, who's, who deserves to be number six? Because I think a lot of the offensive lines, they just have holes. And as we always like to talk about here, about being at least average is, is important and useful and all that stuff. Uh, when you're looking at these offensive lines, even say like the Ravens, who are in the top five, they have holes. They have question marks, guys, to, uh, you know, spots to fill. So um, offensive lines – are difficult to rank because a lot of them have, you know, two or three good players and a couple holes. Some of them have just average across the board. Um, but I think the, the, the top few are pretty clearly uh, in their own league right now. We have the Indianapolis Colts at number one, all five starters returning and four out of five ranked at the top 10 in the top 10 at their respective positions. The exercises like this are always really interesting, right? Because almost regardless of how well, you know, whatever specific team it is you have an interest in, like you get guys that are amazing analysts, but they only focus on one team. No matter how well you know that one team, if you don't have like an appreciation for the league as a whole, you can't place it in context. Um, You can only deal with the context of what that team has had over the years, but what does that look like league wide? And, you know, people talk about that as uh, if you're if you're a hundred percent draft guy only, right? If you only focus on the draft, if you never spend time watching the NFL, you don't know what the NFL looks like. You don't know what that should look like. Like, what does a great right. NFL linebacker look like, so that I can apply these prospects to that and and actually compare it? So when you start doing these lists, and you you sort of have preconceptions as to how good or bad certain offensive lines are. It's only when you start looking like all 32, you're like, wow, they're really like, there's a massive step. You get the first few and they're good. And then, then we fall off a cliff and we go down to like everybody being average until the bad teams. But that like the exercise of just going through all 32, I think is really important for that sort of league wide context of where everybody fits. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a huge point, and I think you know you and I have discussed on here before as well. It's it's something we've discussed with teams where the you know teams know their personnel inside and out, and they've questioned us and been like, "Oh man, I can't believe you had our right guard as the twentieth best guard, or right guard in the league, or whatever it is." It's like, have you really looked at the other right guards or whatever the position was at the time? Have you actually looked at the rest of the league and how bad they are? So I think. Um, being able to compare across the league is crucial and, uh, yeah, it's a fun exercise going through all these. Um, so, uh, 
you know, you didn't, you had, you looked at the list. You didn't necessarily have any major disagreements. Do you agree with the Colts at the top? Anthony Costanzo comes back at left tackle. Quentin Nelson at left guard. We've already said is probably the best offensive lineman in the NFL. And I think one of the biggest stories on this old line is the fact that Braden Smith, a former college guard, a very good guard, has come in. And last year, he was the number nine overall tackle. And his first two seasons have been just awesome at tackle. We don't see that guard to tackle transition, giving the Colts one of the better tackle tandems in the league to go with Quentin Nelson, who's just awesome at left guard. I think, yeah, Costanzo coming back, I think probably seals the fact that this is the best offensive line in the NFL. There's, there's no weak link really like Mark Lewinsky wasn't great early in his career, but he's come on massively with the Colts and the offensive line, I think, should be helped with a transition from uh, Brissett to Phillip Rivers. Brissett was, you know, one of the five, I think, slowest quarterbacks on average in terms of getting rid of the ball, holding onto it too long, essentially stressing his offensive line with how long he asked him to pass block. Rivers is usually at the other end of the scale. Like, he gets rid of the ball quicker. Um, he might not be able to do much in terms of moving around and being mobile and fixing those things, but he should get rid of the ball quicker which will help out those guys so I think collectively they should be helped this year compared to the season ago I think the Colts are the right pick the only other offensive line I think that you would really put in that conversation would be the Saints but the Saints at least have some question marks right you've got Sam Sam, I'm sorry to interrupt but I have breaking news if you could check your slack really quick or maybe your email you might have the same breaking news uh, uh, Manscaped is not a sponsor for this particular episode. However, I have some sort of order shipped from Manscaped. Well, not only have you got an order shipped, but the description of the order is the Shears 2.0. Come that on, can you can only mean good things. You can't give it away, but I cannot wait. I can't. You can't. Also, give I like there's <laughs> there's as long as you know you're diving into the manscape reads and dublon tundras the fact that this email concludes with you can track your package is pretty <laughs> impressive uh, you can track it then you can shear it 2.0 the shear what were the shears 1.0 we've never sold that here uh i don't remember the shears 1.0 the plow was that safety razor thing. that's right we have uh, the plow this is plow and the lawnmower i don't know the shears I apologize for just, uh, I lost my cool is what happened. I got this email <laughs> update. I was very excited. I had no idea that a pack. I don't have one yet. Maybe, maybe only you are getting the shears. Maybe, maybe they just sent one per podcast. Maybe. I, I sure hope not. I'm not uh, anyway. sacrificing the shears. If you, you know, you got some, you got something that needs to be taken care of. We now return to our regularly scheduled programming, uh, discussing who so, yeah, the saints potentially the saints, the I think game. have a case. But Andrews Pete isn't good, and Cesar Ruiz is a rookie and therefore an unknown quantity right now. Um, The other three, I think, are of the same kind of quality. But the Colts are the one offensive line out there that I just think doesn't have any question marks, right? Is there any other line that doesn't at least have one spot that's now a question mark? No, like, so when when we're looking at these rankings, last year the the Colts ranked third in our end-of-the-season rankings behind the Eagles and the Ravens. The Eagles have since lost Jason Peters. And the Ravens have lost Marshall Yonda. So just by default, and you know, the Colts were the Eagles and Brandon Brooks, of course, with the Eagles now at the time of, of this ranking, I, I had to move them down even further um, because of that. So um, just by default, the Colts on paper look like, you know, the best line because of that. 
And then the Saints, to be honest, if Larry Warford had come back, and this isn't to say that the Saints definitely made the wrong decision or whatever, they released Larry Warford, but he was good last year. Um, and I know that they want to give – they believe in Cesar Ruiz, but he's a, he's a rookie, and as you said, he's an unknown quantity at this point who graded pretty good, not great, last year at Michigan. So is he going to be a good long-term play? Probably. But Larry Warford – was legit last year. So that is a little risky as far as the short term goes, I think for the saints. And to your point, Andres, Pete, like there are people around the league I've talked to who like the fact that Pete played a little left tackle a couple of years ago and, you know, he moves around, does all these different, they, they believe in him, but man, watching some of his film is, is ungly, uh, lungy and just some ugly reps on there. As I went back to try to justify him, he is clearly the weak link for the saints but they have the best tackle duo in the NFL and Ryan Ramchak at right tackle, Teron Armstead at left tackle. Those guys are spectacular. And Eric McCoy was a top 10 center as a rookie last season. So um, if they get that type of production from Ruiz at right guard, maybe they are competing with the Colts for that number one spot this season. Yeah. And Armstead has to stay healthy as well. Cause he's right. been banged up in the past. Like if you're Armstead is in the Jason Peters realm of is probably going to miss some time most years. Um, which doesn't help. So um, with, with Ramchek though, I mentioned this, if you look at the best offensive tackle grades through three years, you've got Joe Thomas and Jake Long. That's it in the PFF era who have graded better than Ryan Ramchek, 90.2 grade in his first three years in the league. Does it all as far as run blocking goes, one of the better pass protectors in the NFL at right tackle. So uh, Colts, number one, Saints are number two. Uh, and then the other team that was probably competing up there is the Dallas Cowboys. And they have a loss as well. They're losing Travis Frederick to retirement. Even last year, coming back uh, from missing all of 2018, didn't look exactly uh, like himself. I could see the Cowboys still being really good, though. Tyron Smith at left tackle. The fact that they had Lyle Collins break out last year and, and look really good at right, uh, at right tackle. Is that what I said? Tyron at left. Um, two good tackles. And then Zach Martin, uh, maybe the number two guard, maybe the number one guard. But I think him and Quentin Nelson competing for that top spot year in, year out. So, again, there's a lot of lines where it's like three-fifths of this line looks really good or four-fifths of this line looks really good. And there's a question mark for the Cowboys. It's, uh, you know, it's center replacing Travis Frederick. And then Connor Williams has been eh, just okay as he enters his third season. Are the Cowboys finally an offensive line in decline? You know, they, they assemble this incredible unit and then kept it together pretty well for a number of years. Suddenly the cracks have started to open and it's not really their fault. Like Travis Frederick obviously got the illness um, that has essentially ended his career. He was able to come back, but wasn't the same guy. Um, you know, as PFF great last season, he played the whole season, but he wasn't nearly as dominant a uh, force as he has been in the past. So he's gone. Now both guards are, uh, or sorry, one guard, the left guard is a question mark and, and the and center. Um, Zach Martin's the one true superstar. Now Lyle Collins was really good a year ago, but then Tyron Smith, you know, injuries have been a constant problem for him to the point where again, it's rendered him like not the same player. Like Tyron Smith has been held up for years by anybody that knows offensive line play as like the prototype. This is the guy who, when he's healthy, when everything is 100%, is like the most talented offensive tackle in the game. 
but those caveats have become like bigger and bigger and more and more of a problem because like we haven't seen that guy for a while. Like the best, most talented left tackle in the NFL has been sort of damaged, right? Irreparably broken by the series of injuries he's had over his career. And now I don't know if that guy exists anymore. And if you're sort of left with the guy who's still good, like still a good left tackle, but is never going to get back to being that dominant force. Yeah, so if you're just ranking Tyron Smith's best seasons over by overall PFF grade, it's 2015, 2013, 2014, and 2016. All right, then 18, 11. So 2019 was his second worst overall grade, and I went back and watched him a little bit. I just fired up some 2015 film to watch him in pass protection versus last year. It does look a little bit different. Like in 2015, you're talking about the prototype at left tackle movement patience hand usage for everything is just just beautiful last year just a little off as you mentioned all the injuries kind of catching up a little bit just looks a little rushed um, as far as pass protection goes compared to to what he was at one point so so yeah I mean that is the um when you're putting rankings together and you're saying hey the Cowboys are three there's uncertainty with all of this stuff because we're saying, hey, there's a track record of success with Tyron Smith. However, there's a little bit of a decline in, in him being banged up. With with Lyle Collins, there's really that one breakout season where he had a career-high 86 overall grade. You know, can he duplicate that? The one thing I'll say about perhaps in, them improving is Connor Williams could have a similar breakout as, as Lyle Collins. And not just because I was a huge fan of his coming out of college. He's got two years under his belt. He does do some things pretty well. And typically I think you'll hear this a lot on this podcast that's like that's when offensive linemen break out that's when they tend to if they're going to take a leap it's in years three or four um I think even guys like Eric Flowers who are like you know lol worthy around uh social media and have been terrible even he had a decent season moving to guard and had you know in year four last year so guys who start off their careers slowly can figure it out in year three or four and Connor Williams um could be that guy for the Cowboys this year would you like to know what the Shears 2.0 are, by the way? Yes. Thank you for doing some research on the fly. It is a, uh, oh, it's it's a, a nail and whatever, manicuring kit. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. The Shears 2.0 is a luxury nail kit, which is perfect for you. A luxury four-piece nail kit featuring tempered steel, stainless steel tools with a compact case made of premium PU leather. I don't know what that is. Magnetic closure display and a laser engraved logo. Listen, as I mentioned, they are not sponsoring this podcast. Can we please not give Manscaped any extra free advertising? No, they're friends. They're, they're, our, they're our friends. So uh, you probably get 20% off still on the, uh, on the lawnmower over at manscapes.com using the promo code PFF. You guys can still do that. But TBD on what, what's going to happen with the Shears 2.0, what we're going to be able to offer. No, nobody knows just yet all right i'm still upset that only you got one i don't have you get one at some point we all we both get the same stuff all the time oh no do we have to give this stuff to mark (laughs) to turn it into hr don't we what do you think mark there's no way mark has uh use for a nail kit COVID, i assume we can just hold on to stuff now if it's well yeah we can't travel into the office to give it to him so right normally we might have to give our free gifts to uh hr so don't worry, Neil. Proper protocol here. We are not 
We're not breaking any rules here. It's for the podcast. Uh, let's get to a couple of the other teams rounding out the top 10. We went with the Packers at four, the Ravens at five, who are considered a little bit higher. And the Cleveland Browns at six. This was this was kind of like the cutoff point where I said there's there's really a lot of indecision with so many of these lines. When I look at the Ravens, I look at that line and I say, okay, I trust that scheme. I trust the position that they're going to be put in, and I think they're going to look really good. When I look at the Packers, David Bakhtiari, uh, they bring Rick Wagner in to play right tackle to replace Brian Bulaga, but you get El- Elton Jenkins on the inside, Corey Lindsley. You know, they're solid across most positions there. The Ravens are solid across most positions. The Browns, it's banking on Jack Conklin being good again at right tackle and Jedrick Wills coming in and being good at left tackle. But I think Browns fans might be surprised to see them at six after they were in the, you know, the bottom 10 last year. Yeah. Are you surprised that the Browns are actually going to roll into the season with Jedrick Wills starting at left tackle? Like that they haven't gone for that short term Jason Peters emergency band-aid for the position. Yes. Yes, I am. I, I really look at this. Here's the other thing, right? I, I'm looking at this list and there were, I was doing this with the receivers too. I was, I was thinking, where would Deshaun Jackson fit in? Well, I'm thinking about these guys that are available that would fit in really well. I, I, was, I looked at many places where Jason Peters would have fit it would fit in really well. I think the Chargers are a team that are in desperate need of a left tackle. And I still think that the Browns, after they invested in Wills, I'm not terribly surprised, but I do think with this offseason, uncertainty and rookie reps and, and who knows how much work he's going to get for a team that has expectations like the Browns do, having Jason Peters there, I think would be nice. My question with Peters, if, if it is a true Kubiaki, real outside zone scheme, is that the best fit for Jason Peters? He can still make those blocks. He can still do that. He's just not exactly the perfect option for maybe that type of scheme. But as far as pass pro goes, man, I feel much more comfortable about than with Peters than about all but, what, five or six offensive tackles around the league right. still? And he's no worse a fit for that than Jack Conklin on the other side who they just paid big money for. True. So, like, And the other thing is, with Jason Peters in that category of uh, – he will miss some time, right? There's no way you're getting 16 games out of Jason Peters. So you're going to get like, Wills is going to get on the field anyway. It's not like you're definitely going to be shelving him for a year. Peters will miss time, but you'll get almost certainly a, a much higher baseline of play for that position for most of the season. You'll still get Jedrick Wills feet wet over the course of the season. But like the entire Browns off season has been about, you know, eliminating variables and problem areas and being able to focus just on what Baker Mayfield does this season, which is almost true, except you have this question mark at left tackle. Like, why would you not answer that question mark for a relatively cheap contract and Jason Peters, get it sorted, be able to bring on Jedrick Will slowly, you know, only put him in there when Peters gets hurt or when he earns the job and be confident that there's no longer a problem at left tackle for Baker Mayfield the way there was last season with Greg Robinson there. I, I can see people, uh, even as I, I look at this, I, I don't, there's not a huge difference between the Browns at six and, and a couple teams below them. You know, the Eagles could move up. The Steelers could move up. It's just every team has at least a few question marks. Jedrick Wills is one of them for Cleveland. So yeah, you could mitigate some risk there and add Jason Peters. And then it's Wyatt Tail- Teller at right guard, another one of those guys where I say, okay, maybe this is the year uh, where he could, you know, take a, a step forward. 
I'm, I'm more likely to appreciate those guys when they're at least surrounded by decent talent. So Connor Williams surrounded by good players with the Cowboys. The, uh, the Browns are really good at left guard with Joel Batonio in center with JC Treader. Um, and then you've got Conklin at right tackle. So when you look at the baseline of three fifths of their line is solid. You need Teller to take a step forward. You need Jedrick Wills to essentially hit the ground running as a rookie. So there are some question marks, but the potential is certainly there for the Browns. The Patriots were at number seven and it's similar, you know, you've only got a little over 500 snaps of Isaiah Wynn at left tackle in his career. And the rest of the line is solid. Joe Tooney was a you know top guard last year. Shaq Mason has played as a top guard, took a step back last year. Marcus Cannon and, and David Andrews returned to center. That is just solid across the board. But the big question mark is Isaiah Wynn putting together a full season. He had a 70 grade last year. Solid, not bad. But they're one of those. They're, they're just good across the board, which makes them seventh, right? It's not exciting, but it's good across the board, which makes the, gives them a top 10 offensive line with no superstars. They feel almost overrated and underrated, depending on who you ask. Like, a load of yep. people think that the Patriots' offensive line kind of fell to pieces last year. But the whole point is that it was based off the fact that no receivers were getting open. So, in a way, it's like they weren't necessarily worse. It's just that their situation got dramatically worse. The problem is, has that really resolved itself this offseason? Um, they like, might be. The, the interesting thing here will be if Cam Newton or Jarrett Stidham plays quarterback. Well, either one. One of those guys will play quarterback and will almost certainly be holding the ball much longer than Tom Brady does historically. And especially Stidham, who does have you know, a little slow internal clock at times, could make this unit look a lot worse. So uh, they took a step back, I think, from from a run-blocking standpoint. They just were not as efficient. The tight ends weren't as good either. Just everything up front from a physicality standpoint wasn't as good last season. Um. Yeah, and the the lack of receiver separation is still a problem. Right. So it is like right. that last year was the longest Tom Brady had held onto the ball on average, certainly in the last ten years. I don't think I went back through his entire career, but yep. definitely over the last decade. And like that's a the length of time the quarterback holds the ball is basically a direct um a direct relationship to how bad an offensive line is gonna look for in terms of surrendering pressure and general pass blocking. So Brady was forced to hold on to it longer than ever before last season. And even when like he, you know, you, you hold on the ball to the point where pressure starts to come and then you can get rid of the ball, but because, you know, there'll be a, a place to go with it. But even when he held onto the ball to the point where he got pressured, there was still nobody open. So his performance under pressure was worse, which again makes the offensive line look worse because you remember the fact that the quarterback was pressured when the ball is falling incomplete or when right. it's being intercepted, you know, you don't remember it when he's able to get rid of the, the ball, complete a first down and everybody moves on with their lives. Nobody, nobody remembers the fact that he was under duress during that play because he turned it into something good. So again, like everything made that offensive line look worse last year. And I don't know that any of those things have improved this off season. Like the offensive line is still, you know, we talk about running backs and the situations they're in and quarterbacks and the situations they're in, but offensive lines are, are dealing with the same thing. Like they, are influenced by a bunch of other factors as well. And the Patriots may have the worst offensive line situation in the NFL, like independent of personnel, like the, the situation that offensive line is going to be put in this year might be the worst in football. Plus Dante Scarnecchia retires. 
So if they do, he, do like, take, he stays on as like a consultant though, or something like he doesn't actually ever leave. I don't know. I mean, they, when he did leave 2014 and 15, they took a, they did drop yeah. off a little bit, but, but I think even then, like he stays as a, like, he just doesn't travel on the plane. Like, he still, oh. like works for them essentially. Oh, well that's, that's all you need. Really? You don't need you at the stadium, Dante. Right. You don't have to actually be at the road games. You just work from home, zoom it in. I don't, I don't even need you in the building. Part of the reason why I think I, I put them at seven too, I actually, I do really like their depth. They drafted two guys that we liked two years ago, Yadni Kajust and uh, Yeldi Froholt as just, I, I think they have a good vision for the future as well. So if Joe Tooney, the franchise guard has to move on, they've got potential replacements. I think they've done a good job of, of rolling about eight deep as far as the offensive line goes with at least uh, usable players. Uh, the San Francisco 49ers and Pittsburgh Steelers at eight and nine, and then the Philadelphia Eagles at 10. But the Eagles, like I said, I think could move up losing Brandon Brooks. If they have Brandon Brooks, they're probably sixth or seventh on this list, maybe even higher. Yeah. If they had Jason Peters, they're right back at, into that top three. For them to move back up again as a team that does perennially land, I mean, they're in the top 10 every single year. Uh, Andre Dillard, their first rounder in 2019, talked about a forward-looking approach. They did a nice job drafting him a year before they needed him. Supposedly, he's bulked up this off season and it was a bit of a transition. It's he wasn't great last year, but coming from Washington state's spread offense, yes, he had a ton of pass sets in his career, but uh, it's just a different offense. I think he has all the skills to be a really good pass protector and would not be surprised if, uh, if he is good uh, this year, his first year as a starter, if that's the case, combining him with Lane Johnson and Jason Kelsey, two of the very best at their respective positions, the Eagles are right back up potentially in that top five. If Dillard progresses. And he got some playing time last year because, again, like Jason Peters never plays the full right. season. So he actually got in there, got a few starts, a left tackle. Um, like they went okay. The first two were pretty rough. He gave up a sack. He gave up nine total pressures against the, the Vikings. The Vikings are one of the best uh, defensive yeah. lines in the NFL. So that's a rough way to, to make your debut. Dallas was the next game. Again, pretty rough, five total pressures. But then the next two games came against Buffalo and Chicago. Um, who still aren't exactly crappy when it comes to defensive linemen. And he graded in the 80s in terms of pass blocking both games. So, you know, tiny sample sizes, obviously, like four games worth of starting effectively. But we saw, you know, two really rough outings to begin with, and then he found his feet. I also like some of the guys that they've added that um, round out the depth chart. We've taught during last year's preseason, Jordan Mailata, um, even though I'm some people really thought- curious to see if he it continues that preseason performance, like in the two games of preseason we might get this year. Like right. if, if we get to see preseason and he like, – preseason is interesting, right? Because I think the strongest sort of relationship between – the strongest thing you can take from preseason is that if a guy is struggling in preseason, that's really bad. Right. Like, you know, everything is set up for you to be good in preseason. So if, you, if you're bad, that's a major, major problem in terms of regular season play. But like, if you dominate, it doesn't mean that you're going to be good. But I think it at least sort of raises your hand and says, hey, I, should, I need an opportunity to do something at the next level. So whether you start to find that guy some playing time, whether you start to investigate ways that he's a, a bigger option than you thought he was to begin with. And like Mylata really did well in preseason. Like He's obviously got the movement skills. He's got the size. He looked really good in preseason. If he can do that again, if there is a preseason – 
that would be really interesting in terms of, you know, like if Dillard, if Dillard starts to struggle, if whatever, like my suddenly becomes like an option for playing time. Yeah. We got into PFF because, you know, we love watching players develop player development, you know, knowing the, the ins and outs of, of what makes uh, a good football play or a bad football play. And I'm just really fascinated where, where teams find players, where they find good players. And this from a team building strategy, spending a seventh round pick in 2018 on a rugby player who's a monster, doesn't really know how to play the position. And within two years, looks like a reasonable tackle in the preseason, right? So that is one of those we, we joke about, hey, players don't just get better every year. Well, that's generally because they played football in high school and they played in college and like you're running out of things to develop and you've probably already developed physically at some point. But Mylotta is a young football player and still has a ton of room to grow while already showing a ton of of promise. So if you can steal a potential starting or even a swing tackle in the seventh round, that's great from a team building standpoint. So I like that. And I also like the fact that they brought in Jack Driscoll in the fourth round. Prince Tega Winogo uh, out of Auburn, two guys, the quote-unquote developmental tackle, guys who were productive in college, but, uh, you know, just lacked in some area, either physically or in the run game as far as Driscoll goes. They have some depth at tackle. So I really like, much like the Patriots, I really like some of the players they have. Matt Pryor is a decent guard prospect. They have a, a two-deep at offensive line, which, which rivals most teams, I think, as far as just overall depth goes. Yeah, Driscoll, of course, all of a sudden has to start because Brandon Brooks popped his. Is it the same Achilles or the other one? It was the other one, I think. So yeah, he suddenly I'm gets curious in the starting lineup. There are some depth charts and that have him as a guard. I I don't. He just doesn't have the power to play guard. I no, I, but I mean, I think, the issue would be who else is starting if it's not him. I think Matt Pryor probably has a better shot. I wonder if Mylata could potentially kick inside given his size and everything. I don't know. Is he too big for it? Maybe. But I just don't know. I see Jack Driscoll as more of a pass-protecting tackle than I do a guard. So there, there are certainly some some question marks there. Isaac Sayomalu finally showed a little bit, some signs of life after a slow start. So they're they're pretty good across the board, I'd say, in Philadelphia. But again, like every other team, they have some question marks. The 49ers at eight, Trent Williams comes in, replaces Joe Staley. It, it might be a lateral move, to be honest. Not, and that's not a knock on Trent Williams, but Joe Staley has been really, really good. He did take a step back last year, uh, but he was still seventh with an, an overall grade. Trent Williams could be much better and higher, but we haven't seen him. He's you know coming off a year. Uh, either way, they look good at left tackle again. Mike McGlinchey's an awesome run blocker at right, guard, at right tackle. He struggled in pass pro a little bit. That's been, uh, that was exactly what he looks like coming out of Notre Dame. Uh, but they've got some depth. Ben Garland's, Lakin Tomlinson, Mike Person, Tom Compton, a lot of guys with starting experience. Weston Richburg coming back at center. Another team that's about eight or nine deep on the D on the O line that that gives them their top ten ranking. Yeah, I mean the fact that it's a lateral move, if it is a lateral move, going from uh, Joe Staley to Trent Williams is huge because usually if you get a you know, team ring of honor type caliber player retires, you're in for a massive step backwards of that position. You know, you don't typically replace that with a guy of the same caliber and the 49ers have just have found a way to do that. So if that is a lateral move, it, being able to step laterally at that position, despite one of your best players retiring is a massive, 
boost for this team because the alternative was much, much worse. Agree. It is. I mean, it, it's not just, it's not like replacing a franchise quarterback, but it's the same concept, right? Like if you get stuck trying to find a guy for five years, you know, you're in trouble. Just look at, say just the Houston Texans, they lost Dwayne Brown, who was a really good left tackle. And they were stuck with Julian Davenport for a year and a half playing tackle, playing maybe the worst left tackle in the entire NFL before they actually traded for Laramie Tunsil. Avoiding that transition time is absolutely huge for the 49ers. I mean, regardless of position, replacing a Pro Bowl caliber player yeah. with a Pro Bowl caliber player is not easy. You know, t- we've talked before, talent acquisition, even in, in the draft, the strike rate is like 30% at any, for anybody at any position. So trying to take a swing and nail it in one is tricky business. And the alternative is paying significant money to do it in free agency or whatever. Either way, it's not an easy, you know, given that you can just plug in a replacement for the guy you lost and be fine. The Pittsburgh Steelers are ninth. They have been just like, they've been the poster child children for the average across the board offensive line. Ali Villanueva is solid at left tackle. Matt Filer has come in and been pretty good at right tackle. Uh, uh, was it Marcus Gilbert was there for a few years playing well. And they've just, They've just been pretty good across the board. And they add another one of our favorites, Stephen, was, uh, Stephen Wisniewski coming in for Ramon Foster, who retired. He'll come in and maybe get a full season at left guard. He's on like his sixth team or whatever it is. Marquise Pouncey has been pretty good. To be fair to Marquise, as our friend Ben Stockwell dug into the numbers, he has had the highest percentage of straight one-on-one pass protection opportunities over the lot. He's got three of the highest seasons since we started tracking that. So even with his lesser grade last year, as long as Pouncey can snap the ball uh, somewhat accurately, he's not, you know, he's, he's a pretty good center. David DeCastro is a good right guard. They're just good across the board in Pittsburgh. They are perennially a top 10 team as well. So I was on a Pittsburgh radio station recently and they asked me this question, which is really difficult. Uh, like David DeCastro is the best offensive lineman on that team. Order the rest of them for me. I'd go Villanueva, then Pouncey, and Filer and Wisniewski. Hmm. Ali's a good left tackle. Yeah. Pretty good. Uh, He is almost dead smack in the middle at left tackle, and Pouncey is probably dead smack in the middle at center, if not maybe slightly in the top half generally. Last year he was not good. But generally he's probably in the top half of centers i would argue we've seen more from filer recently than we've seen from pouncy oh okay it's not crazy i wonder so this is what team people have asked us in it about the positions that we say always seem to to grade well and i don't it might just be pure coincidence but when you have marcus gilbert grading well filer grades well and is the pittsburgh right tackle just a position that they seem to be able to take not just anybody, but pretty much anybody and get success out of them. I don't know. Um, Pouncey does have a lot on his plate at center. Give him at least that due. As we get into the teens, yeah. As we get into the teens, I think some of the more interesting teams, when I was looking at the Kansas City Chiefs line, uh, they're at 12. And then the Houston Texans recently, so they're at 19 on this list. And recently our guy Timo came out with the breakdown of, pass protecting offensive lines on longer developing plays. And I believe the Texans came in at fourth 
and they we think that they have this terrible offensive line. But when you look at it, they're 19th on this ranking here because the run game is a part of this analysis. The Texans and the Chiefs might be the two most distinct offensive lines where they're pretty good in pass protection and just not good in the run game. So both are factored in here, but they are very one-sided offensive lines. I think everybody on the Texans O-line graded in the 50s in the run game, but the steps forward that they have taken in pass protection with Laramie Tunsil coming in and just having one guy going from the worst left tackle to the number three be- uh, left tackle in pass protection, that's going to, you know, you're going to cut your pressure percentage down. I think he cut it down in, like by like a third or he, yeah, he gave up like a third of the pressures of, of Julian Davenport and then Titus Howard and Max Sharping and some of the new guys that they've brought in there have been solid, at least in pass protection. And the Texans are a lot better than they were a few years ago when they were, you know, one of the worst two. Yeah. Well, they're, they're a perfect example of, you know, all the upgrades you try and make on that offensive line, you have to bear in mind that they are being put into maybe the hardest situation in the NFL in terms of how long that quarterback is going to hold on to the ball. Deshaun Watson averages longer than three seconds um, per drop back every time he's got the ball in his hands. You know, there are guys that average like 2.3. That difference is an eternity. 2.3 is like every single pass is coming out in on rhythm in a five-step drop. Three is like you're taking some time even after a seven-step drop That like on average. So the difference between those two things is monstrous. So like every, every analysis of the Texans' offensive line has to factor in the fact that they are being asked to do more from a pass protection standpoint than basically any offensive line in the NFL. And... It, it, like if you replaced if you replaced Deshaun Watson with Drew Brees, you would immediately see that team catapult up in terms of offensive line and pass blocking and look dramatically better. So the fact that they're anywhere possible in general metrics or, or grade or anything like that, like is is a massive thing in their favor. And then with the Chiefs, like I said, kind of similar. You know, a- Andrew Wiley at left guard and Andrew Reader at at center. Your guy is a reader or writer. I the guy that you like, but I assume Mike Rice was Mike Rice because that's how right. it's spelled. It's writer and filer and feeler and oh, man, all these names that are uh, similar here today. All of these guys, Wiley was 12th best in pass blocking, uh, writer or reader, ninth in pass blocking. Mitchell Schwartz went on one of the best playoff runs in history, allowing just one pressure on 142 pass blocking attempts. He's outstanding in pass pro and Eric Fisher's been solid in pass protection. I mean, all of these guys, grade well in that one department none of them have graded well from a run blocking standpoint but going back to the points we keep making the run game is effective because the pass game is effective and they've got people trying to stop Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey and Tyree Killy they don't need to be a good run blocking offensive line so from a team building standpoint if you get the quarterback and you have a good passing attack then if you're going to ha- pick the way you want to construct your offensive line, get guys who are better at pass protection than they are run blocking, and then scheme up the run game as best you can. Run blocking matters in the run game, but scheme and box count and pass game matters more. I think from a team-building standpoint, the Chiefs and the Texans are doing it right. The, the O-line's not great on paper, other than Mitchell Schwartz and Laramie Tunsil. They're not great on paper, but they're good in pass pro and good enough in the other areas because, you know, Mahomes and Watson are really good. It is officially Austin Ryder. Um, I Thank wonder you. if there's a world where scheming up, you know, we, 
the, the sort of all the data about running backs and the run game that we've been talking about is, is sort of led points of this uh, way of playing, which is this Mike Leach style of offense where you spread everything out. You only run against favorable looks, favorable defensive fronts, and you essentially scheme the yardage. You, you don't rely on winning through uh, superior execution in terms of blocking and running. Um, like, I wonder if there's a world where that type of system where you're spreading everything out and you're winning by increased space up front actually makes run blocking harder because part of offense, part of run blocking with offensive linemen is you get to operate in a phone booth. You get to operate in really close quarters and there's not much space to have to deal with. It's, it's more brute power. That's why these guys weigh 330 pounds because it's inertia. It's a battle of physics. But what happens when you start to spread out everything and these guys now have to operate in a lot more space against smaller, faster defensive fronts because they're being kept in nickel defense and they're being kept in their, you know, pass rushing sub packages. I wonder if that sort of push towards that kind of stuff actually hurts the run blocking performance of some of these offensive linemen. It's a great question. If it does it hurt performance and does it even truly matter if I mean it might not matter but right if you have a good successful run game Um, I was when I was writing up the Cardinals offensive line they're another team that is similar everybody had a pretty good pass blocking grade believe it or not the Cardinals uh, they finished where did they finish on this ranking here as I look down Uh, they're at 21st that's with DJ Humphreys at left tackle He, he had a career across the board career year for DJ Humphreys in pass in pass pro Justin Pugh at left guard, finally staying healthy. He was actually ninth among guards. Justin Murray had the lowest pass blocking grade. He was the starting right tackle last year at 67.3. Not a bad number for the worst pass blocking grade on the O-line. Even J.R. Sweezy, he had his best pass blocking grade since 2013. So now you add Josh Jones to the mix, probably replaces Murray at right tackle. Pass pro grades really, really good. Their run blocking grades were not. However, Cardinals running backs second in the league in yards before contact. Now, how much of that Kenyon Drake? Yeah, he had a couple big runs, maybe skewed it a little bit, but that was the spread run game. And oh, right. by the way, Kyler Murray was charged with 42 pressures and 23 <laughs> sacks on his own. If you have a tackle giving up 42 pressures, like that, that would that would rank fourth or fifth in the league in pressures allowed by a tackle. That would rank in the top five, say. And if you had a tackle that gave up 23 sacks, they're not making it past eight before they're benched. And Murray had 23 that he was charged on his own. So Kyler's got some room to do to improve there as far as protecting his offensive line. There, I think, is a great example of what I was talking about because the Cardinals, like the main focus I've had of looking at that whole relationship is that I think the Cardinals are the perfect team for running back like Kenyon Drake, because he's got speed, he's got ability to make people miss in space and maximize uh, room when it comes to rushing lanes and, and become so successful, right? And that's why his numbers are so good in Arizona compared to Miami, um, because that system is set up to spread everybody out to create these wide lanes. The the run splits are huge, or the the offensive line splits are huge, like the gap between each individual offensive lineman is larger than it is in most other systems. So you have this whole system that's designed to create space in the middle, in the box where the running back is going to be moving. Um, It's great for the running back because it suddenly generates all this space. He's not used to dealing with, but it 
like does it, it I would uh, contend that it stresses the run blocking abilities of the offensive lineman. Now the Cardinals, I mean, at least on the surface as a case study are a really good example of that, because as you said, they all graded reasonably well in pass blocking, but they all graded consistently crappy or below average in terms of run blocking. Basically every single one of them graded in the fifties. Um, right. Now your point is good in terms of what does it matter, right? If they're if, the offense, if the blocking grades in the fifties, but the run game is really successful, it, it's not a problem, which is true. But what it does is potentially shift how you evaluate the offensive line and the group as a whole and, and individually, like those might actually be better players than you would admit you would initially give them credit for because the sort of the bad of their game is being artificially inflated by the system and by everything else. And the good of the game is potentially being undervalued. Right. And, and so. Did you just mute yourself or did I just lose sound? I don't know. I'm still here as far as I know. You are now. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm still there? here, man. I haven't okay. gone anywhere. My internet connection is unstable, apparently. Uh oh. That's what it's telling me. I'm plugged in. We're all right. Um, yeah, going back to the order of operations of what makes a good running game, effectiveness of the pass game, box count, then you get to run blocking in the in the running back. If you know that you're good at those top couple, I think you can make those decisions easier. If if you know, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna be good at scheming. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say here's here's six tight ends and four fullbacks and bring 10 guys in the box and just try to outman you. I know I'm going to create an advantage in the run game. I know I have a good enough quarterback and receivers that my pass game has to be respected. If you have that starting point, then I think you can make more favorable decisions in, in how you build your offensive line. And it goes back to that. You don't have to create a Dallas line from the last five years. You can, you can be in the middle of the pack here. Uh, some of the other teams I think are intriguing. The Buffalo Bills, I, I like the approach the last couple of years of, of attacking with volume. Uh, it's just when you look at their starting five, Deion Dawkins is probably their best player. He's just a, he's a pretty good left tackle. The rest are just pretty good across the board, which is fine, but you need Cody Ford to probably take a step forward. If he starts at right tackle, I think they're sitting on maybe a better starting right tackle in Ty Inseki, who's been just this really good swing tackle over the last couple of years, but could probably play a reasonable starting right tackle. Every time he's out there, he grades well. Um, Daryl Williams, I like the fact that they took a shot on him just to see if they could capture the magic from a couple of years ago. Uh, Mitch Morrison there, Quentin Spain, all guys who have played well at some point. Uh, so much like other parts of the Buffalo Bills, it's it's a bit of a question mark, but it could go well. And uh, I think that's when you're in the, when you're in these middle tier offensive lines, that's kind of like the story, right? It could go really well. It could go yeah, just okay. Another offensive line that's not helped out by the quarterback, like Josh Allen is in the Deshaun Watson end of the spectrum in terms of how long he holds onto the ball. But, I mean, yeah. all of your most athletic quarterbacks are typically in that area. Anybody that likes to scramble obviously usually holds onto the ball longer because they can, because they can buy time and they can actually make things happen. Um, but even in terms of just like per pass attempt, Josh Allen is usually um, at the the long end of the spectrum. As far as the Tampa Bay Bucks, they're at 13 and like everything, Tom, the interest signing with the Bucks after 20 years in New England, not only how will he be, in Bruce Arian's system, how will this affect the offensive line? If it's a Brady-ish type of system and he's getting rid of the ball a little bit quicker, 
this line's going to look a little bit better to the point you keep making. If he is holding the ball and, and it's deeper drops and there's more pressure on the O-line, they were actually pretty good last year, though. Donovan Smith had his best season at left tackle. They lose DeMar Dotson at right tackle, who's been, you know, in PFF terms, one of the more underrated players over the last 10 years, his 10-year career. Tristan Wirfs comes in as a first-round draft pick to play right tackle. And their interior of Ali Marpet's been really good. Ryan Jensen's had one bad year, a couple good ones. Like, they're pretty good on the interior. Um, so the Bucks O-line is going to depend a lot on what that pass game and the system looks like with Brady and Arians and those receivers. Yeah, this is interesting. This is one of the reasons that this whole sort of marriage of Bruce Arians and Tom Brady from a schematic point of view is really interesting because um, over the last three years, Jameis Winston has led the league in an average depth of target by a mile. Like this is an offense that pushes the ball deep down the field, which works in direct opposition to getting the ball out of your hands quickly. Like he hasn't been among the slowest uh, quarterbacks in the NFL in terms of getting rid of the ball, but he's been what, like top 10 in that regard. Like obviously the, the, the deeper downfield you throw on average, the longer you're going to hold it. So that's that part of the offense is trying to force a quarterback to hold onto the ball longer. And then Tom Brady's MO or one of the things he's always done really well is get rid of the ball quickly. So those two things come at this from completely opposite ends of the spectrum. And again, it's like, where, where does that land? Like, what does this end up looking like? How close to the Bruce Arians end is it? How close to the Tom Brady end is it? What does this offense end up being when they get out on the field? Like I'm, that's one of the stories I think of this season is what that offense ends up actually looking like. Uh, It's absolutely going to be fascinating to to watch that unfold i do wish we had the whole offseason to to build it up and you know say hey they had enough time to at least work it out one of the more intriguing offensive lines is sitting right there dead smack at 15 the tennessee titans you won't see a much bigger discrepancy as far as sides go taylor lewan one of the better left tackles in the league roger saffold one of the better left guards in the league and by the way saffold was great you and i both do a ton of nashville radio and early in the season, Marcus Mariota's getting sacked left and right. And Roger Saffold gave up a ton of those sacks early in the year. But those were like the only pressures that he gave up. He gave up six sacks in the first six games. And everybody's saying, what a terrible signing. He's horrible. And he didn't give up one for the rest of the year. And he had a 75 pass blocking grade that ranked 17th among guards. That was a good indicator, I think, of, hey, we're grading the block. And if it becomes a sack or not, it's very much on the quarterback and Ryan Tannehill is not necessarily better than Marcus Mariota at that aspect of quarterbacking, not taking sacks, but Mariota was taking every sack last year. So Saffold looked really bad. And we said, I remember going on Nashville radio a ton saying, don't worry, he's okay. And, uh, and that proved true. So their left side is really good. Taylor Lewan, Roger Saffold, Ben Jones at center, but their right side is Nate Davis who really struggled as a rookie. And then is it Isaiah Wilson, the big developmental first round, right tackle is it Dennis Kelly who's been a swing tackle losing Jack Conklin who was you know a top 10 tackle last year it could be a big loss for the Titans given what that right side looks like yes Saffold's improvement as the season wore on was another big thing in that whole is it Derrick Henry is it everything else you know like Ryan Tannehill obviously made a dramatic improvement or a dramatic change when he came in as quarterback but Roger Saffold and generally the offensive line, actually Taylor Lewan struggled early as well. Like the offensive line took massive steps forward as the season went on. And as Derrick Henry started to cook as well, like this whole thing 
started to work around Derrick Henry. And that's when he started to look like an unstoppable, you know, rushing champion. Uh, let's go to the the bottom third of the league here. And let me know if there are any lines that stick out that you, that you want to discuss. I'll mention a couple though, starting with the Chicago bears. We have them at 22nd. They are one year removed from being uh, very much one of those solid across the board types of offensive lines. They all took a step back last year. Charles Leno, Bobby Massey, uh, both really not even close to their 2018 performances. Kyle Long, when he was on the field, was just not good. He ends up retiring. Rashad Coward takes his place, also not good. And then they had Cody Whitehair and James Daniels just switch spots halfway through the year. Whitehair goes back to center. Uh, Daniels back to left guard. Those guys look fine. I think they'll be they'll be okay going forward. This offense, though, Massey and Leno at left tackle, they are two guys that have been right in that middle tier of tackles for a big chunk of their careers. They need that again. They can't be uh, as as bad as they were last year. Whether that is some Trubisky and holding the ball and guys not getting open, maybe, but uh, the Bears are one of those teams that should be more in the middle of the pack from an O-line standpoint, but had to put them at 22 heading into the season. I think they bounce back to somewhere in the middle just by switching Trubisky for Nick Foles, a quarterback. Like, I don't think Nick Foles is great, but he's at least okay in terms of pocket manipulation, in terms of time to throw, in terms of all those things that negatively or positively impact an offensive line. Trubisky was a disaster last season. Everything about him fell to pieces, and consequently the offensive line started to look a lot worse as well. So I think you make that switch, and immediately this line jumps back to being somewhere in the middle. The Minnesota Vikings at 23, I thought were fascinating too, because by all accounts, they got the run game going, right? They got the run game going and Dalvin Cook, when he was healthy, finally showed what he was capable of. Their overall grades weren't great still, but when you look at the breakdown, so I broke this down by offensive line, ready? Positively graded blocks per run. The Vikings were second, sorry, third. So they were making good blocks, but they also had the second highest percentage of negatives per run so they were making some bad ones as well I think the positives at least give your running back opportunities right to make big plays that's Dalvin that's what he's capable of but the negatives just mean you have a lot of plays that have no shot and I, th- I think that kind of sums up what the Vikings run game was last year with this offensive line yeah I sent you that thing that percentage of positively graded run blocks among guards number one is Quentin Nelson number three was Brandon Brooks Makes number sense. two was Pat Elfline doesn't make as much sense based right. off the grades right like he is that's a fascinating kind of um profile that Pat Elfline has built here as a as a guard but yeah the, the Vikings have thrown so much of this offensive line over the years and it still isn't good um like hopefully Ezra Cleveland can be an answer at left tackle um you know they spent a second round pick on him it would be huge if they finally connected on another one of these the last guy that actually worked out for them was another second round pick Brian O'Neill is the one sort of consistent really solid player in that offensive line if they could bookend that with Cleveland at left tackle that would be taking steps in the right direction uh the Falcons are at 24 they have they need their 2019 first rounders Chris Lindstrom and Caleb McGarry uh, to just be good Lindstrom showed signs of it McGarry was not good but they're another team the you know they got Jake Matthews who's good Alex Mack is good left guards a question mark even on all these offensive lines, you can find good players, but it's about that starting five, which also brings me to the Rams, probably the 
the biggest drop off last year, right? They go from one of the best offensive lines back to back years, 17 and 18. Last year, they ranked 31st during the regular season. We've talked about Havenstein just being terrible at right tackle. It, it didn't make any sense. He had four seasons that included an 80, that were really good, including an 83.6 grade. He was seventh among tackles in 2018, and he drops to 81st. I mean, just getting him up back on track alone with Whitworth at left tackle is huge for the Rams, and then you just kind of hope that the young guys on the interior, and they've got a lot of them, you hope that they progress. But once again, on paper, it's tough to put them ahead of the number 25 ranking that we gave them. Yeah, the Rams are one of the most interesting offensive lines in the NFL, I think, because this basically this group has been as high as top five and it's been as low as bottom five. In fact, it's been as low as like bottom two. Um, and they didn't really change the personnel. Like they didn't go out there and say, oh, man, we need to overhaul this thing. We need to get like they decided that kind of like the 49ers a year ago. They thought, all right, the personnel we have is actually good enough to do this. We just need to trust in them getting better this year. Uh, Havenstein is the one I think that's the most likely to do that because that collapse kind of came out of nowhere. Like he was a good right tackle and suddenly he wasn't anymore. And not only was he not good, he was disastrous. Like he just went from good to awful with seemingly no reason for it. Seemingly no, nothing prompting that just click. And it went that to me, there has to be something behind that. Like that has to be an injury that he was battling all the season long or, there's got to be a reason that a guy goes from being that consistently decent to just not. Um, And they, they, so then they lose Roger Saffold and it's, it's a, it's a, but if, if Havenstein's back to form, Andrew Whitworth, even though he had his lowest grade since 2008, still a reasonable left tackle. If if they're at least pretty good at tackle. And then it's just what, like six guys on the interior between Austin Blythe, Austin Corbett, Joseph Noteboom, Brian Allen, David Edwards, Bobby Evans find three guys that could play decent football in that group. It's not the worst strategy in the world. It's just, it could land anywhere. They could be 31st again, or they could creep back into the top 15. Yep. They they Uh, were so catastrophically bad last season. What amazed me is that they never got to number 32. It was almost like no matter how bad you think your thing is, there's always, there's always somebody worse out there. Like that was the Rams offensive line last season. We'll get to number 32 in a minute. I wanted to discuss the New York Giants for a second, too. They're number 20. They had Nate Solder at left tackle was not great. Mike Remmers was on the other side, also not great. They had the most pressures allowed among any tandem uh, tackle tandem in the NFL. However, much like we talked about fan bases and teams earlier, I think the Giants fans think they had the worst offensive line in the NFL. Right. Last year, they were 17th in our regular season rankings. They were almost right in the middle of the pack. Daniel Jones held the ball a little bit too long. A lot of those sacks and fumbles were on him. There's a Nate Solder's a little bit better than he showed last year. Right tackle is going to be Andrew Thomas, the number four overall pick. Who knows what you get from a rookie offensive tackle, but he's very good. Whether he's good this year or not, we'll see. I think he'll be very good at some point down the road. Will Hernandez was outstanding in college, has gotten off to a slow start, but he's one of those year three guys. And you have Kevin Zeitler at right guard. There is a scenario where four-fifths of their offensive line comes together and becomes at least average or better. Still a question mark at center with Spencer Pulley. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Giants are one of those teams that could actually land in the top 10, which I think sounds crazy to Giants fans. I mean, basically everybody from like the mid 
to early 20s last season down thought their offensive line was the worst offensive line in the NFL. <laughs> it's it's but true. Again, like unless you're looking league-wide, what you don't understand is that last year featured three or four of the worst offensive lines PFF has ever seen. So in the last 15 years, three of like the worst offensive lines we've ever seen happened last year. Right. Um, so you needed to be utterly catastrophic to be the bottom offensive line in the NFL. Like if you were just bad, you weren't even in the conversation. You were in like the, there are these teams that would kill for a bad offensive line because the one they were trotting out was like an absolute abomination. <laughs> it's it's true. It was it was not great last year. So don't be surprised if the Giants take a step forward. Depends on a lot. It depends on it's the tackles really. If Solder at left tackle gets a little bit better than he was, and he was better in 2018. He took a huge step back last year, and then. Uh, whatever Andrew Thomas does at right tackle. And then the other New York team, the Jets, they were 28th last year. We have them at 27th. I don't even know that they improved. We've said this over and over on the pod, a million question marks, but uh, they might have the biggest wide range, uh, the widest range of outcomes because there are so many new players, including Makai Becton, first round pick, probably going to be the starter at left tackle. He could be a good player, probably need some time to transition. So, yeah, I mean, the Jets honestly could end up at 32. Maybe they sneak up to 20. I don't see much higher than that, but there's there's a lot of question marks with the turnover there. I mean, there's I think there's a world where they go much higher than that. But, we, I mean, we were dinging the, the Saints at number two for having one question mark on the offensive line. Like, the Jets have five. They, <laughs> right. they, they, like they swung. They've replaced – all the positions, but we don't know if they got better yet because nobody there is like this surefire thing. And it's not that just like every player is a question mark when he's new, you know, even the guys that have a proven track record in the NFL, they added free agents and all those kinds of things. Like none of those guys have more than one season of quality play. Like it's, and it's not like you can't just go off the most recent thing you saw that that's what we've learned is that that isn't, isn't the way to do things. You have to look at a, a greater body of work and it's possible the guys like Connor McGovern is on the upswing and we just saw the latest evidence of that. It's also possible that he just had a good year and you've sort of bought into that and it might not be the thing to do. So we just don't know with the Jets. It's, it's five question marks and that could land anywhere. All right. I want to get into the bottom three unless you have any others you felt like discussing. No, let's do it. All right. Bottom three coming in at 30. The Los Angeles Chargers, 31, the Cincinnati Bengals, and 32 goes to the Miami Dolphins. They were 32 last year. So starting with the Chargers, they they trade Russell Okung. Are pe- where, where did people land on this trade? Were people say, saying the Panthers didn't know what they were doing here by trading Trey Turner yes. for Russell Okung? Not that I care what people say. But I think the Panthers may be, may end up with the better end of the deal here. They got a starting caliber left tackle in Russell Okung. Granted, he's coming off injuries. He's getting a little bit older. But Trey Turner, is a he's a pretty good right guard whose best season was four years ago. So that's what the Chargers have right now. They have a massive question mark at left tackle, which is going to be a battle between Trent Scott, Sam Tevy, and Trey Pipkins. And, yeah, just not good. Just not good. The one improvement that they made is Brian Bulaga coming in to play right tackle. Bulaga had nine games last year where he allowed zero or one pressure. 
which is the same number all Chargers tackles had last year. So Bulaga could at least, when he's healthy, he's good. He is one of the better right tackles in the league. He can at least lock down that spot. Left tackle's a huge question mark. Trey Turner, like, he's pretty good. Dan Feeney at left guard hasn't played well. Mike Pouncey hasn't played well in a while at center. Forrest Lamp hasn't become the Lamp that we expected. They might have two decent starters, and that's it. The Chargers, again. Yeah, which is still a big upgrade over a year ago. <laughs> that's true. That's, true. <laughs> that's the state of the Chargers offensive line, basically, for the last 15 years. So that's about true. So they're at 30. The Bengals are at 31. And the most attractive thing that you can say about the Bengals offensive line is Jonah Williams didn't play a snap last year. He's coming back. The 2019 first round pick. He steps in at left tackle. Everywhere else, huge question marks. The Bengals offensive line is my favorite because in any normal year, this would be the most catastrophic offensive line in the NFL by a distance. It would be abysmal. And it wasn't among the worst two last year because there were two more cataclysmic right. disaster, like natural disaster offensive lines out there. Like the Bengals played multiple guys for extensive periods of time that had PFF grades in the 40s and not even the high 40s, like 41.8 for Billy Price, 43.7 for Michael Jordan. Billy Price ended the season with a pass blocking grade of 26. Oh, God. Like, I don't know how, I don't know where on the zero to 100 scale you would wind up if you played a season at guard or center, but I don't know that it would be much worse than 26. Okay. It might be much worse. It might be. I don't, like, there isn't that much worse. That's the point. Like, there, like, there's not that much more room to be worse than 26. He was amazingly bad. Um, I, I want to go ahead if you have something. I'm else. just like, they, they were so awful last season. And yet the fact that they had vaguely possible play from, you know, Trey Hopkins over a thousand snaps and Bobby Hurt, uh, Bobby Hart was just sort of standard bad as opposed to abysmal bad. Kept well, them from being right. Kept them from being the worst two offensive lines in the league. I want to back up because the, so Cordy Glenn, this is what we're on here and we're just spitting takes left and right. Right. And, uh, a couple of years ago, I really liked the move that they made to trade for Cordy Glenn. And when I when I analyze these trades, it's it's through this idea of what's the potential good outcome, what's the downside, and all that stuff. I thought that the Cordy Glenn trade, which was essentially they they dropped ten spots in the first round, they exchanged first round picks with the Buffalo Bills. The Bills used that pick to trade up further and go get Josh Allen. Whereas the Bills ended up draft, uh, the Bengals ended up drafting Billy Price. But regardless of the outcome of that trade, they dropped ten spots in the first round to get Cordy Glenn, who's coming off an injury-prone couple seasons in Buffalo. And I thought that the potential high end of that was you get 2013 to 15 Cordy Glenn, which is essentially a top ten left tackle, which is great. Talk about team building, and if you could steal a top ten tackle for just lo- dropping ten spots in the draft, and you're not drafting a quarterback. To me, that's a no-brainer. I thought the process there was great. Now, Cordy Glenn, since getting traded to Cincinnati, has played just over 1,000 snaps over two years. He wasn't great in 2018. Wasn't, he only played 291 snaps last year. So they did not get that high-end outcome out of the Cordy Glenn trade. He's now gone. I still liked it from a process standpoint. I just wanted to say I thought they made the right move. Now, you could say maybe they should have just held on to Andrew Whitworth 
a couple hmm. a couple years prior. And just as we said that the 49ers very smoothly transitioned from Joe Staley to Trent Williams, the Bengals have done the opposite where they had to, I forget who was their left tackle in 2017. The first year Whitworth was gone. It was bad. And then they had to, you know, they trade for Cordy Glenn. That hasn't worked out. Then they had to draft Jonah Williams. So they've had to do all these different things just to replace that one guy. And then the, the players that played left tackle last year for them, beyond Cordy Glenn, you had John Jerry, a career below average guard. Yeah. You had Andre Smith, an oversized right tackle who was good at right tackle like seven years ago. And then Fred Johnson, a guy that might lurk around the NFL as a backup. Maybe. They That's are not great good. Example. Yeah, they're a great example of how hard it is to replace good with good because yeah. they were confident enough in the disastrous duo of Cedric Aboyhe and Jake Fisher to be like, Andrew, you've been a great servant, but we don't want to pay you the money. Have fun. And that started this disaster. It's like you walked away from a Pro Bowl caliber tackle actually he was better than that he was an all pro caliber tackle even when they let him go and they just couldn't come close to replacing that not only did they did they not get anywhere near all pro or pro bowl they couldn't even get to good they couldn't even get to viable so that's the danger and anytime you have this you know anytime you let go of a player of a certain caliber it's it's risky because you just don't know what you're going to be able to replace him with yeah the Bengals had a really good offensive line for a few years I mean Andre Smith, really, he hasn't been good since 2013. He struggled through a couple of years, you know, finishing up with the Bengals and then has bounced around. He's listed as 330 pounds, by the way. I think he's mm. anyway, Bengals, second worst offensive line. And then you have the Dolphins coming in at 32, by far the worst offensive line last year. They've made a few changes, which could make them better. Ted Karras comes in to play at center. He had a good year last year, but again, it was it, it's under the Patriots umbrella. It was his first full season as a starter. Uh, Eric Flowers, 64 grade at guard last year. Reasonable. Not the first round tackle that he was coming out. Uh, Julian Davenport probably doesn't have to play left tackle this year, but he's being replaced by Austin Jackson, who has a ton of question marks. First round pick out of USC, but he only graded in the low 70s in college. So I think he has some work to do. And here's, here's how much the Dolphins, I think, have issues on the offensive line. They felt the need to lock up Jesse Davis, their starting right tackle, who had a 58 grade last year that was 67th among tackles. But he's probably their best option at tackle right now. So I think that's just where they stand in Miami. I love where they're going. I love what they've done. But we always said it was a two-year rebuild. So let's not – or three-year rebuild. Let's not lose sight of the fact that we're like in year one and a half of that rebuild. Yes, they got Tua to play quarterback. Their playmakers need work. Their offensive line still needs work. They've tried investing in Austin Jackson. I just don't know if they got the right guy there or it's going to take probably three or four years for him to develop. Yeah, I mean, two-fifths of this offensive line will be completely new to the NFL, presumably. What, three-fifths of the offensive line are completely new to the Dolphins? Um, or not four-fifths, right? Flowers as well, or did he play there last year? I forget. No, he was in, um, he was in Washington, and he was right. okay. So four-fifths of the offensive line will be new to the Dolphins. Like, in terms of expecting this to be good year one, that's extremely unlikely. So Here's, here's the number you need. They had seven offensive linemen play at least 330 snaps last year, only one graded above 60. Yeah. And any anything in the 60s, you're not really average. Like, 65 and up, you're getting into that 
mid-tier level, low 60s, obviously you're below average, and then the 50s and 40s, it's it's poor play. So one guy over 60 last year. Yeah, and a huge amount of them were, again, terrible when it comes to pass blocking, which is the big thing. Like We've seen right. a lot of teams where the run blocking was poor, <clears throat> but the pass blocking was decent. The Dolphins' pass blocking was pretty catastrophic and hasn't gotten better necessarily. The, their best case scenario is Karras comes in and he's a solid center. Uh, Robert Hunt, they spent a second rounder in. Again, I think they've invested properly. They drafted two first two linemen with uh, first and second round picks. They had a ton of draft capital. Hunt is a pretty powerful run blocker, could end up being a starter. Flowers is reasonable again, and Jesse Davis becomes an, you know, a, a mid-tier type of right tackle, and then who knows what happens with Austin Jackson. Once again, it's when you're putting these lists together – if you have six what ifs just to get just to become an average offensive line, you're probably not that good. I think that's where the Dolphins are. So, is there a scenario where they get better? Certainly, but I think it's pretty clear on paper them and the Bengals. It's hard to argue. I think Jonah Williams among the Bengals and the Dolphins is potentially the best lineman between the two teams, and then the other nine potential starters are all, you know, big question marks. That's why they're the bottom yeah, I mean- two. Those were the two of the bottom three offensive lines last year. And at least on paper, it doesn't look like they're going to get much higher than that this year. So there you have it. It's a, we didn't hit on every team, but I think, I think those are the biggest stories. Anything else we're missing here? I like the whole rankings, whole rankings at pff.com. We tried to try to give your team a little bit of love. We, maybe the Browns are high at six, who knows, but give me your team that you'd put at six. Uh, one other team I wanted to mention was the Raiders. They could be a top 10 offensive line. Again, if other things come together, Richie incognito, Rodney Hudson, Gabe Jackson, all these guys would have to play to whatever peak that they've had before to get there. Rodney Hudson's the best pass protecting center in the league by a mile fifth straight season, leading the league in pass blocking grade. Uh, the Raiders came in at 11, by the way, in our rankings, I could see them creeping up a little bit higher. Okay. Sound good. Still on call, waiting for baby. Baby's coming. Mm. Oh, that's that's my little guy. Uh, baby's coming Friday at the latest. So if we do the Thursday pod live, probably touch and go. Never know. Yeah. So we may uh, we may be we may be putting out the Montana versus Young thing next Monday instead of Thursday as planned because because of baby. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's gonna be a crazy week, but an awesome week over at pff.com. The content team is ratcheting it up. We're getting crazy. A lot of good stuff. Fantasy rankings and all the things you need to get through July and August and getting ready for the season. It's all over at pff.com. Stick with us. Maybe back Thursday, maybe Montana Young. You never know, but make sure you subscribe if you don't have it. You get all the updates from our podcast here. And uh, yeah, thank you for tuning in. Go check out the offensive line rankings, the full write-up at pff.com right now. And yeah, we'll see you guys on uh, Thursday.